Howdy, everyone, and welcome back to Moment of Truth, the podcast of American Moment. My name is Sarab Sharma. I'm the president of American Moment. And this hopefully will be the last episode that I'm doing solo before we get back to our regularly scheduled programming. We actually just got back here right before uh, I taped this on a Tuesday from uh, getting Nick Solheim married. Um, He is now on his honeymoon, having a fantastic time. I actually tweeted, I received a message from him uh, Monday morning after the wedding. that that was certainly uh, surprising. It said, um, well, I'll read it out for you guys right now. Uh, at 10.59 a.m., uh, we are on a five-hour moonshine train tour in the mountain. I have had seven shots of moonshine. Uh, posted that that screenshot on Twitter as well. So, so Nick uh, and his lovely bride, Evie Solheim, now are having a fantastic time. We wish them the best. Um, it was just a very exciting day for our organization. Um, but... Uh, to get to uh, some of our more regularly scheduled programming. Uh, once again, want to encourage you guys, as always, to rate and review the podcast. Keep in mind, right now we are giving away a couple of these custom American Moment shirts. Uh, you can't buy these anywhere. We made these uh, in a very limited quantity for friends and allies, and in this case, for people who write a five-star review and send us an email at podcast at americanmoment.org. Um, include the screenshot of your review. If you have a question you want to ask, feel free to, and we'll, we'll give away three of these over the next next couple of weeks um, to uh, the fans of this show. We're keeping up on 100 reviews, and so we really want to cross that sometime soon. It really helps us uh, get this show to more people. We're obviously enormously grateful with all the listeners we have. But this week, uh, boy, do we have a treat for you guys. We have on someone who has been hugely influential, not only on all of us, but the country uh, writ large. We had on Professor Michael Anton, who is a lecturer in politics uh, and a research fellow at Hillsdale College's Kirby Center in Washington, D.C. He previously served in national security positions in the Trump and Bush administrations, as well as in the administrations of California Governor Pete Wilson and New York Mayor Rudy Giuliani. Uh, he has extensive experience in the private sector as well and uh, was educated at Claremont Graduate University, St. John's College, and the University of California. He's the author of the book, The Stakes, America at the Point of No Return. Um, and he also writes very frequently at the Claremont Review of Books, The American Mind, American Greatness, and elsewhere. And when he does, it is always a must-read. Uh, Professor Anton is on the cutting edge of what the right needs to do in order to save this country. We had a wide-ranging discussion on everything from his background, his time in the Trump administration, what he thinks the ideological tenets of this still nascent movement are, uh, what a regime is, and why is that different than just the government. Um, a little bit, uh, well, actually more than a little bit, on on some of the recent arguments he's been having with paleoconservatives and potentially finding uh, a, a source of, of, of common cause with them. Uh, and also a little bit on a shared passion of ours, we talk a little bit about uh, his, his threads, to use uh, some youthful lingo, uh, and, and some of his history on Style Forum, his 40,000 comments that he's made uh, on men's fashion over the years, and, uh, and a little bit of what, what makes him tick. Uh, Professor Anton is a friend. Um, I would have been reticent to say that uh, in months past, but uh, he is a he's a fairly reserved person. But we've gotten the chance to spend some time together over the past few months, and I I think I think he likes me. I'm not sure. He's he's one of those people that you admire so much that you you sort of crave their approval, and, and I think he's a fan of what we're doing here at American Moment, and, and we're certainly huge fans of everything he does. Um, so be sure to check out the episode all the way to the end again. Especially stick around for the bit on on men's style. Um, it's it's a great episode, and we hope you enjoy. And uh, we'll go now to Professor Michael Anton.
Howdy, Professor. Thanks for coming on the podcast. Thank you. We always like to find out how people got to the point where they are now. Uh, how did you get to the point today where, you know, every mainstream journalistic outlet in America thinks you're some sort of intellectual terrorist? Walk us through the young uh, Michael Anton and how he got to here. Pure chance, I guess. <laughs> uh, well, I had a normal, I'd like to think normal middle class upbringing. Uh, the unnormal thing about it is that it was in um, pre-Gavin Newsom, sort of pre-whatever you want to call it, California, Northern California when it was affordable and normal people lived there um, and not everyone was a Silicon Valley oligarch. And so I could go to the beach, I could go to the Redwoods, I could go to Tahoe, I could do all kinds of fun stuff that within you know either steps from my house or a quick drive and that most people didn't have access to. And I took that for granted. As a kid, I kind of thought, well, everybody lives like this. It turns out everybody doesn't. Uh, and it's now all but impossible to live like that w with the income that my parents had or the whatever the inflation adjusted equivalent is because of the changes to the state. Uh, I went to the public university system in California, which was very cheap then. Uh, and my parents were able to pay that out of pocket and I had summer jobs to cover the rest. And, you know, so I had no debt. Um, those places were left wing, but not, they didn't punish you. Uh, they weren't really trying to, with some exceptions, they weren't trying to indoctrinate you. And you could take them on as I did and write contrary opinions and not be graded badly because you dissented with them. Um, I decided at some point I wanted to be a college professor. I went to a college back east, St. John's in Annapolis, Maryland, to read the great books, which I felt I didn't get enough of in uh, university studies or you know my undergraduate days. And then I, I had a little detour where I thought I was going to drop out and go to culinary school. I ended up not doing that, um, but I did work in restaurants for a while, for not that long even. And uh, um, ended up in the think tank world and then went to Claremont, which I didn't, I went out to Claremont for a summer fellowship, not expecting to be, uh, you know, done at the end of the summer and go back to my old job. And I ended up being persuaded to stay there, to go to grad school there, which I hadn't really contemplated before that. And was there three years and got a political job after that in Sacramento in the governor's office, the Pete Wilson and not technically the last Republican governor, but the last governor who really was a Republican mm -hmm. as opposed to Arnold. Um, I did that until he was termed out. Um, a, a ballot initiative that he himself supported uh, and, and campaigned for in 1990 limited every subsequent governor's two terms. He had his two terms, couldn't run again. Not that I can't remember the last time a California governor successfully ran for three terms anyway. Almost all of them, in fact, all of them, Reagan, Duke Majin, Jerry Brown, you know, dutifully Pat well Pat Brown was running for his third term when he was defeated by Reagan in 66 but they'd all you know bowed out um, from there I went to New York I went to work for Rudy Giuliani when he was the mayor I was there for two years and joined the Bush administration as it started I got there not I wasn't there on inauguration day but I was there sometime in February I should look up the exact date um, bounced around a little there before landing in the National Security Council shortly after 9-11 and ended up staying through all the, I was there for all pretty much, except for those early days, I was there for all of Bush's first term and up to the first roughly half of the of 2005. So I left, not, I didn't leave like right at the beginning of the second term, but several months thereafter. I went to New York and I was in corporate jobs for 12 years thinking that that was it. I was never gonna, 
I was just going to close out my life and career there. Not life necessarily, but, <laughs> but you know, like this was done. You do your politics. Die in a high rise yeah. in Manhattan. <laughs> you do your politics when you're young and then you get a real job and, you know, you make some money and you support a family. And I thought, okay, this will be, I'll be here at least until, um, you know, maybe we're empty nesters and then we can look around and see what's going to happen. And Trump came along and changed everything for me. It changed my outlook on things. My outlook had been changing, but it really crystallized it for me. And sometime in the middle of that year, I just decided we're going to leave. We don't, you know, I talked to my wife about it and we decided we're going to leave. We don't want to do this anymore. We'll leave sometime early next year. Um, I didn't think I would go to the administration. I thought, you know, I would leave and I would, I, had, I still had a number of friends in the think tank world. It would be, I'd land somewhere like that. I had already started the conversation, so I had months to figure it out. And and yet I did end up in the Trump administration, um, despite being more or less certain that I wouldn't, A, because I, I was more or less certain that there would not be a Trump administration. <laughs> uh, and then because I thought, even if there is, you know, I won't get a job. And I got a job. I did that um, for a year and change. And, and then I got my current job in the spring of 2018, which is at Hillsdale College, just near here, just, you know, on the other side of the in northeast. We're in southeast right now. So it's a couple, a few blocks away. Uh, talk to me a little bit about those ideological shifts that you had in the lead up to the Trump administration. Where can you peg the sort of genesis of realizing? Well, I, look, I was I had been a long time immigration skeptic slash hawk. Like I thought, yeah, you work for Pete Wilson. We, <laughs> right. And you know, I worked for Pete Wilson. I was in California in 1994 when they passed Prop 187, which would have had a federal judge let it stand, barred uh, welfare payments to illegal immigrants, things like that. And I so. I had long kind of immersion in that issue and and believed and 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 one of, this is one of the things that I struggled with in the Bush administration is they were you know very open borders Rove and all the people and Bush of course and all the people around him and I sort of you know told myself well that's not the issue I'm working on I'm working on all this war on terror stuff with the NSC and I believe in that so you know I don't need to like resign on principle or anything I was also very young and nobody would have cared had I resigned on principle and they yeah. would have just been like who <laughs> somebody left you know I was like the Miles Taylor of the Bush administration <laughs> had I said something like these people don't know what they're doing right yeah. the whole world would have just blinked and been like who cares? Whereas if you're Miles Taylor and today's guy, you can pretend like he's an important person. Yeah. He's a senior administration official, right? Um, but in fact, we were at about the same rank. Yeah. Um, so I stuck with it. I, I you know, as, as Iraq went bad, I would say by 2007, 2008, like I had concluded and talking to friends like, well, we blew this. Not merely did we blow for, You go through stages. It's like, this is the right thing to do. It's all going to work out. Well, it's a failure of execution, but we can correct it. To, it's a failure of execution, and apparently we can't correct it. And the final stage is like we shouldn't have done this in the first place. Right. It takes a while to get. At least it took me a while to get to we shouldn't have done this in the first place. And to everyone out there who wants to say, well, I knew from the beginning. All I can say is, okay, great. You know, good for you. Yeah, there's um, like all of three people, and I think Pat's one of them. <laughs> there's a handful. I mean, all the people who founded the American Conservative. Okay, you guys knew from the beginning. There's a handful. It's more than three, but it's not like the majority of the conservative intellectual movement or of the Republican Party. So I figured that out. I didn't feel super passionately about it, but I figured it out. And the, the last piece of the puzzle was trade, which I never thought about, except as a, you know, free trade, conservative, free market absolutist. And I was aware that there were these, I was aware of Pat Buchanan's arguments. I even bought a book, I think the guy's name was Ian Fletcher, called Free Trade Doesn't Work. Yep. 
And I read a review of it somewhere. I thought this is intriguing. I should at least be aware of the arguments. I bought it around 20. I don't don't quote me on the year because I'll say 2011 and someone will say, well, it wasn't even published till 2012. <laughs> I don't remember. But it was sometime, some number of years before Trump. I bought this book and I read it and I remember being intrigued but not convinced by it. And when Trump started talking about it, I actually started to dig in a little more and, and look at it more seriously. But also it, there was a... Trump's talking about it, it seemed to me to prompt a serious reconsideration of the issue where he started seeing articles by, and I wish I could remember names on this point, I can't off the top of my head, but by serious people who had had serious jobs either in the diplomatic corps or in the trade space in the, you know, the 80s, 90s, and 2000s, writing retrospectives of their career around 2015 going, everything we tried to do didn't work. You know, It was obvious also by that point that the big bet that bipartisan administrations had placed on China going back to the 80s had failed. That wasn't deniable anymore. And so I thought, Trump's the guy. Look, we've got we've got Rand Paul over here who's got the war message right, although he's, he's too non-interventionist for, even for me, but at least he's not Jeb Bush and he's not the rest of these guys. Um, he really had nobody running on immigration. You'd had Tancredo before, but he was a one-issue candidate and a congressman from Colorado and not well-known. He wasn't ever going to go anywhere um and so and then you know Cruz eventually decided to be harder line on immigration after he saw trump succeeding with it but from the beginning trump was the only one saying we need a border wall we got to get out of the middle east or he didn't put it that way i mean he we have to reduce our commitments and get in fewer wars and we gotta um you know we gotta be more serious about trade we gotta be we gotta protect our markets protect our industries he's the only one arguing all of those three things and i thought and he was waiting on it and i thought this is interesting. Um, and I wanted to write about it. And so I did write something about it before Iowa, before anything. I asked the editors of the Claremont Review of Books, where I had been sort of been my home base for years. Even while I was doing corporate work for all these years, I wrote for the CRB. Two, three, four times. Well, four is a lot. Maybe in some there was some year where I wrote four. But let's say on average two times a year. Hobby kind of stuff. You know, it's just weekend. I'm going to write an article. I wrote one about the Beach Boys. I wrote one about Napa yeah. Valley. Most of them were not political subjects. Or if they were, they were peripheral. Like I, I wrote books, I wrote, I reviewed books on nuclear proliferation. Things that like was that. still allowed in corporate America back then? Well, you know what? Uh, yes. There was a kind of, just don't get yourself, don't get, don't embarrass us. And and, and I didn't because nobody cared. Like the, the, I, nothing to take away from the CRB. But even now, I think the subscription, which has gone way, way, way up in the last three or four years, is still pretty small compared to a big mainstream magazine. But back then, you could write something in the CRB, and you could be sure that nobody in corporate Manhattan would read it, except the donor class, whom, most of whom I knew personally anyway. And they were all rah-rah for it. Yeah. And I wrote for City Journal. and you know, So I was just doing this as a hobby. And they knew about it. They knew about it. People in my companies knew about it. And they just thought, oh, that's, that's interesting. You know. Well, when I, when I asked to write the one about Trump, which I asked to do in like December of 15, it was going to say... Out of this, you know, Trump should be the nominee. He's the best candidate, or at least he's got the best. He's got the right on the issues. That had had the CRB published it, I would have published anonymously. I knew that that would get me in trouble. Yeah, but they rejected it. Um, and so, and I ended up with a, a few other guys starting a blog called the Journal of American Greatness, and that was like one of the two anchor pieces of the blog. And we did that for about four months. It got more attention than any of us thought it was going to get. And some of the other guys got, we all had jobs, I will say this. I mean, I'm saying this to me, I'm not trying to disparage anyone, but they got panicky 
thought we might be at risk. We probably were at risk. I was having so much fun. I just would <laughs> I would have continued anyway. Yeah. But the decision the gulag had, is just camping. The decision had to be, called, you know, and and they wanted to shut it down, and so it was shut down in June. And I was very kind of bummed about that. And then the more I thought about it, the more I thought, you know, they did me a favor. Um, had this gone on, one or more of us would have gotten caught, and God knows what would have happened. But that's kind of when I, after we shut it down, that's when I sort of said, all right, I know that my heart isn't in this corporate stuff anymore. It's in this. I got to get out. Let's start planning a way out. I started calling people. Okay. Sometime in next year, I want to be in another job. What do you, you know, can we talk? And we had some, you know, I had some interesting conversations. It was clearly going somewhere. Like I, I would have had a place to go. But I kept hearing, well, but there, if there's a Trump administration, you know, you're going to, you should go. Because I had White House experience. And I said, there won't be. He won't win. Well, but if it is, you should go. I said, well, what makes you think they want to hire me? Well, of course they will. And I said, honestly, look, I've tried to offer my services to these guys just as a volunteer. Like, hey, I've been there before. I kind of know what you might be dealing with. Do you want to talk to me? And I got silence back. Or I would get some interest, but it was, you know, I took it personally as because I take everything personally. But <laughs> I, I took their sort of, yeah, we want to talk. And then you wouldn't hear anything. Or you get one meeting and it wouldn't go anywhere. I was like, they don't, you know, they don't care. But it, it probably was just the fact that they were running a campaign and it was seat of the pants and everyone was disorganized. And so I just figured... Well, you know, then they did win and they did reach out eventually. Um, and I did end up going there. What was the sort of postural change that you think happened to you between 2008 and 2016? Um, because it, it seems impossible that someone involved in politics at all wouldn't be thinking and placing primary issues like trade today. But but obviously there were just different things that people cared about back then. How what was it? What what to you were like the big civilizational questions from two thousand eight to twenty thirteen? I think first of all, two thousand eight, you were still close enough to nine eleven. Yeah, that you know all the candidates and and Republican primary voters still thought that security was this big issue, and and I think they also thought this is a winning issue against Democrats who are still perceived to be, you know, um, soft on this stuff. It was much more that old Cold War dynamic that the Republicans were the Hawk Party and the Democrats are the Dove Party and this favors the Republicans was still taken for granted mm -hmm. by both sides. Um, that was intentional. That was an invention by Karl Rove. He said, we need this in order to have a Republican majority in this millennium, like with the Cold War ending. Yeah, I don't remember him saying that, but um, I don't know. I wouldn't be that cynical. That is to say, look, the nine, they, these attacks. They did happen. Uh, they did galvanize the country. They did, in fact, lead to, for instance, the Bush administration or the Republican Party winning the midterm in 20, 2002, which never happens. You're always supposed to lose seats um, the year, uh, to, you know, in your first midterm after a successful election bid. That didn't happen that time, and almost entirely on the backs of war on terror security as is an issue. Um, but we, those of us who thought that underestimated a couple things. First of all, they underestimated the extent at which the failure in Iraq and Afghanistan, but mostly in Iraq, had utterly soured the population on the war. Republicans just weren't awake to that in 2008. Um, the extent to which um, uh, things like that combined with Katrina and other just sort of manifest failures of the Bush administration mm -hmm. gave the whole uh, operation, a kind of air of incompetence. Mm -hmm. People were just like, it's time for a change. Mm -hmm. Let's just change. And then the financial crisis uh, and the housing, the housing bubble and the financial crisis, which the Bush people 
obviously, you know, much did much to fuel and create and then didn't handle well. And the fact that it happened in September, you know, that it all really blew up in September, two months, is almost perfect timing to sink the Republicans and to lift Obama. Um, and then, you know, I don't take anything away from Obama. He had, not that I'm any kind of fan, but um, he had, he was one of the few who could plausibly say to the Democratic electorate, I was against the Iraq war from the beginning because he could point to speeches that he gave in 2002 when he was whatever he was, a math, uh, sorry, an Illinois state senator or something, <laughs> right? I mean, who cares what an Illinois, well, if you're going to run for president, then you care. Saying this isn't going to, I'm against this. And the Democratic primary elected was overwhelmingly against it and had been from the beginning. Um, so you could say that. And, you know, look, it's just, you, you, you put to this kind of sunny hope and change right on a couple of issues, lucky in the terms of the financial crisis happening on his watch against this record of failure, incompetence, and a guy, and then a nominee who's basically running on doubling down on all of it. it seems, when you look back, 2008 seems to be a foreordained conclusion. Yeah. Even though many of us foolishly went to the polls thinking McCain could win. Um, <laughs> and then, you know, we kind of did the same thing in 2012. First of all, we, we Republicans did what they always do, which is, Whoever came in second the last time gets the nomination the next time. We'll see if that spell is finally broken in 2024. Um, it's, it's an unusual dynamic for a lot of reasons. So, you know, first you nominate McCain, then you nominate Romney. And um, I don't know, to, to me, if you're asking what changed in my thinking, I would say in 2008, it still seemed plausible to me that the country would go on more or less stable and unchanged Long, and in very selfish terms, long enough for me to kind of live out my career, sell my house in an orderly fashion, move somewhere that retired people go. And, and I, I don't play golf. So what, do whatever you do and have your kids and grandkids come and visit you for the holidays and kind of live out. By 2015, like I knew or I intuited strongly, that's not going to happen. We don't have that much time. My country's in a much deeper crisis than that. I still believe that. And I'm actually, I'm still confronted by lots and lots of friends and colleagues who don't believe it and who resent me for believing it. I think there was a very interesting phenomenon that happened during the beginning of the Trump era where the loudest voices, even within the institutional conservative movement in support of Trump came from really one, but one of two places. Uh, I, either they came from California, like yourself, uh, or they were like outer borough white ethnics from New York. And like, these were the two groups of people that I think had a, a longer time horizon sense of where the country was going because they saw what had well, happened in the I mean, place it, they were I from. Mean, if you mean amongst like intellectuals, that might be true or yeah. whatever we are, yeah. you know, writers, scribblers, pseudo intellectuals. Mm -hmm. But in fact, his biggest sources of support was Red America, Rust Belt, Heartland. Right. You know, um, he'd get these incredible turnouts at rallies in Western Virginia, West Virginia and central Pennsylvania, mm -hmm. um, flyover country for lack of a better term. And none of those people were intellectuals, you know, showing up, well, I'm going because, you know, uh, so I think it is, I wouldn't overstate that. I mean, yes, there were a lot of Californians on the right who supported Trump and the same thing from, you know, the outer borough types. Um, but in sheer numbers, we were negligible. Right. We seemed significant because many of us had been involved in Republican politics and or conservative intellectual writing and things for a long time. And there was a sense of, wow, how did this person with a track record who used to work for that person, like, how did he become a Trump guy? Yeah. Um, we got a, me and all, you know my friends in Hillsdale and 
Claremont got a lot of guff over that kind of thing. Like, wait, you guys are supposed to be the Lincoln guys, you know, the principled conservatives who studied the founding and understand political philosophy. How can you support this orange bozo? <laughs> it shows that either you were frauds all along or that you've abandoned your principles and you're betraying yourself. And, you know, we wrote hundreds of thousands of words explaining why we thought this and nobody, apparently all the critics didn't read any of it or didn't understand it or just didn't care. They just kept coming back with the same argument. You know, you're, 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 you're betraying your principles. Yeah. Um, what was it about living in California that you think made you more attuned to how bad things are? I saw it go, as I said at the beginning, I saw it go from an ordinary American middle-class place to what it is now, which is a kind of high-low dystopia. Dystopia sounds, I mean, strong. Um, the reason people don't believe California is what it is is because everybody who hears this argument, you know, if you don't live there and if you don't live in certain parts of it, you only see it at its very best. Mm -hmm. So if your whole experience with California is Malibu and Sand Hill Road, it looks great. What am I talking about? You know, I just was at a conference over the weekend, Victor Davis Hanson, another Californian who still lives there, unlike me, gave a talk. And it was an, a good hour about all the dysfunction that's plaguing the state. I knew it all. Like, I, I don't mean to take anything away from Victor, but I'm sort of the last person that needed to hear that because you know, I've seen all of this firsthand. Um, and, and I saw that happen in my lifetime. You know, I got relatives everywhere in the state. I've got relatives in the Tony Shishi places, and I got relatives in the Central Valley. And the Central Valley, you know, like any place, it, there are neighborhoods that are rich and sparkly and always have been. And, but it, it didn't used to be what it is now, which is, Victor says it barely functions. I mean, the I-99, the, 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 there are two arteries that run up and down the Central Valley in California, Interstate 5, and I shouldn't say I-95, it's Highway 99, sorry. It's a state highway. Uh, I used to drive them both all the time. Um, I-5 was a little newer, so maybe the road was surfaced a little better in 99. But it's now uh, fatality per whatever, the, however you measure it, like fatality per mile or something. It's the most dangerous highway in America. There are giant accidents all the time. Victor described witnessing one on his drive to the airport just to come to our conference, a huge <laughs> crash that he barely escaped. He says this kind of thing happens all the time. It's barely paved anymore. This is true all over the parts of California that aren't the shishi parts where the movie stars and the tech overlords live. And the movie stars and the tech overlords not only don't care, they they fund and push policies that make it worse for the rest of California. It seems like one of the things that has changed in how conservatives thought from, say, 2008 to today is that previously they would have described government dysfunction along the lines you described from the Newsom administration, and that, that would have been the extent of their critique. But now they will also mention the influence of cultural elites and corporate overlords. Um, you use the term regime a lot. Mm -hmm. um, and, and someone tweeted at me the other day, it's like, you know, what 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 bell was rang that told conservatives they should start using this term regime? And I'm just curious, what 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 do you think the term regime captures um, as just a descriptive word that that say, you know, big government or whatever yeah. don't don't describe well okay i'm gonna at, at risk of um blowback and mocking i'm gonna draw on my uh, training in political philosophy um the greek for regime is politeia that happens to be the same word as the title of plato's republic right republic is a loose translation a republic is a type of regime we call it the republic because cicero called it de res publica in latin right but the greek politeia means regime which means form of government so a regime may be republican, aristocratic, oligarchic, monarchical, tyrannical, you name it, right? It describes the form or the apparatus 
that moves the political matter, which is the people in the city itself. Um, formally, the American regime is the principles that underlie it and the architecture and the constitution and the laws that operate it. And then the people who hold the offices, how they exercise those offices and to what ends, right? I mean, Aristotle would say, in the, and does say in the politics, you know, the fundamental question is who rules. There are two fundamental questions that define a regime. One is who rules, and the second is for what end? And if we want to break it down simply, who is just, is it the one, the many, or the few? Um, and, and to what end is private good versus the common good? And from that, he says there are six fundamental regimes, right? Um, I say regime because I'm trying to get across the notion that the regime that is on paper, what I have now taken to calling the parchment, right? The, the documents, when you go into the National Archives, if it's open, um, you know, they're up there. Actually, you know, there are murals up there, but the actual original copies of the, the Declaration of Independence, the Constitution, the Bill of Rights. Yes, the Con I know the Con Bill of Rights is part of the Constitution. Thank you, someone, <laughs> for pointing that out, right? But they are, they are in three parts and sort of three stages in the National Archives. That's the parchment. It tells you how the regime is supposed to operate. The regime does not operate that way anymore. That's just a fact. If somebody wants to try to tell me, like, no, it's all working properly, you know, or, well, of course, there's a little deviation here and there, but fundamentally in the main, it's working the way that says, I'd be happy to listen to your case. I'm pretty sure you're not going to be able to convince me, right? So how does it operate? It's a very murky question. Actually, it's a straightforward question with a murky answer that I have not yet fully answered. But we know that it's some combination of public and private power and that the public power is not the public power as we understand it, which is accountable to voters, whether directly or indirectly, because certain offices are directly accountable to voters in the original conception of the regime. Others, by design, are indirectly accountable, but all accountable in one way or another. So there's layers of accountability. Well, we have uh, this huge part of the government, which we tend to call, my, my gang tends to call the administrative state, which is absolutely not accountable to the voters in any way. It nominally reports to the executive branch, which is headed by the president on paper, who is elected by the Electoral College, who are elected by voters in states. As we discovered in, from 2017 to 2021, you can elect that person and he can tell the administrative state what to do and then they can just go on doing what they want. They're not accountable. But that's not the only locus of power uh, in the regime. There's an enormous amount of private power that colludes with, to coin a phrase, the administrative state, but also that kind of revolves in and out. You know, you have a person, you know, I'm an undersecretary, and then I'm a junior partner, and then, or I'm an assistant secretary, and then I'm a junior partner, and then I'm a undersecretary, and then I'm a You're full part of partner, the system. And then I'm a, I'm a deputy secretary, and then I'm a managing, right? So those kinds of people, too, are part of the regime. And I still am working through trying to figure out a precise definition. But it's hard to do, I think, in part because the regime knows it's better off. The less clear this is to people, the more insulation it has from accountability. And so, you know, it doesn't want somebody who's who, at whom fingers can be pointed going, you were responsible for X, X failed, you're accountable. Look at Afghanistan. No one's been, they all just go, all right, that wasn't my fault. <laughs> in fact, better than that, they say there was a problem. <laughs> something went wrong Mark Milley as far as I know is on the hill right now testifying that everything was hunky dory peachy keen oh and it was perfectly fine that he called the Chinese general to say we'll give you a heads up if an attack is coming your way no accountability for anything in this regime 
once you make it into certain offices, you are not only insulated from all harm, you will be showered with honors and money for the rest of your life. I was talking to Victor, I think I will not name names in this case, but I was talking to Victor Saturday night after his talk. And he was explaining to me how certain well-known figures, whom I know personally, uh, have made in very short amounts of time, enormous amounts of money for doing nothing. And whose fingerprints are all over various war, national security, foreign policy failures. Not, not Fingerprint sounds like, well, they might have had a glancing involvement. No, who are the architects of these failures? And they come out, they pay no price. In fact, they end up with tens or even hundreds of millions of dollars and, and all the honors of the world. That's the regime. Uh, that's part of it. What's the historical analog for um, societies where elites are not held accountable um, in any meaningful way? If anything, it's inverse. The more I mean, you think about someone like Liz Cheney, right? Like everyone knows what's about to happen if she loses her reelection is that she's going to be vastly wealthier yeah. than five years. So, so, so it's, it's, a, it's not only like an absence of moral hierarchy, it's moral inversion. Like it, you will be better off by failing to do your job than you would otherwise. Same thing applies to warmongers, right? You, you are not going to get on the board of Raytheon if you're Douglas McGregor, but you right. will get on the board of Raytheon if you're General Milley. Yeah. What, what, what analog is there for any of this? You know, I thought about this this morning. Um, when one writes, one is always thinking about one's next project, even though <laughs> I already have several next projects. But, uh, and, and granted, this would be, you know, I did my, my book with um, my last book, The Stakes, which has a kind of, you know, urgent fraught title, America at the Point of Doors. Now, I have no complaints, by the way. I'm just saying this was, you know, the publishers were like, no, we, we, there's no, no subtlety, right? Yeah. Titles, titles have to just be it's an election year just book, damn it. pedal to the floor. <laughs> uh, and I thought, you know, this would be a good book title for that person. Just un, a title would just be one word. And then, you know, usually they'll come up with a 17 word subtitle or whatever, but unprecedented. Yeah. Because you asked that. That's a, that's a good question. My friends and I talk about this all the time. I can rattle off five or 10 things off the top of my head that are happening now that in my understanding of history, which is not perfect nor complete, but I will say in a self-flattering way, is I believe above average, lots of things are happening now that I know of no analog for in human history at all. They've never happened before, unless I'm missing something. And if somebody wants to point out, okay, no, actually, you know, X, you know, dynamic Y, these things have happened before. I'm all ears. But I think there's a lot going on right now that is strictly unprecedented, which makes it hard to understand the moment we're in. And it makes it doubly hard to make predictions. This is one of the things that does sort of bug me about people on our side. And I, I, don't, you know, I don't criticize them for it publicly because I think our side needs to do less of that. Also, I'm just not on Twitter to snipe at people. But I do get the sense there's a lot of really smart people on our side uh, who will say, I, I, you know, I predict X or the world is going in a certain direction. And they say it with such utter certainty. <laughs> I mean, how could you possibly know that, right? I mean, how could you, given that no one's ever been in this situation before, you know? And even if you could find historical parallels, you can find historical parallels to Rome and to here and there, right? You still have to remember that given the differences in society and technology and population and demographics and wealth and all of this, even the closest parallel still has limits given the underlying differences in the matter that we're talking about. So I think we, we should all, especially those of us well, I'll leave, I'll leave myself out of that. Especially those who are the smartest and see the problems of today more clearly should be a little bit less confident in making predictions because, I mean, we're at, the, we're at one of those medieval maps where we're about to go off the edge of the world. And if you think you know what's down there, I, I don't, unless, unless you've already been, 
right? Or you were, or you managed to hang off the side with a telescope for a few years and make maps and write it down. Unless you, in one of those things, you don't know what's down there. Yeah. I saw a tweet a few months ago and it keeps on coming back to my mind, which is something along the lines of like, in history, things either happen once or over and over again. Um, uh, and, and, you know, so there's no such thing as like a fourth turning. There's no third industrial revolution. Sometimes I wonder about the second world war. Like, you know, it's like basically like you're talking about confused concepts or outright propaganda. If you think something's going to happen in an all a similar way as it has only once before. And that's why I find the like fall of Rome analogies tiresome at the end of the day is because like, no, that happened once. It's not going to happen again in the same way. And, and it, I think technology alone makes what's coming fundamentally different. Um, and I tend to think that technology, this is one thing that I think conservatives do poorly, is that like the, the automobile has a lot more to do with what happened in the 20th century than any idea that came out of a German philosopher's like <laughs> <Maybe>. head. <laughs> um, I don't know. I mean, just, I, I, and I think that over... I, I mean, there's something like Tom Wolfe said, I mean, two of the biggest drivers of the sexual revolution were, number one, um, those m- apartment complexes without lobbies so that every door oh, yeah. went right out onto a balcony. <laughs> And it's like, you think about it, well, this is just a common structure. And his point, he says this in the right stuff, a little known, forgotten kind of thing. No, these only started to beginning to be built in, in the, after World War II and in, like in the late 50s and into the early 60s. They had never existed before that. And the reason this was important is because you didn't have to go through somewhere and be seen where you were going by some, you know, person with the manning the mailbox or the keys or just a busybody, right? You could go right to the door and come out, perhaps unseen. And this had this profound change. Uh, and his other point was uh, the introduction of co-ed bathrooms in, in universities. Like these were the two most important. Yeah. yeah. And they're, as you say, these are not philosophic. This is just some kind of structural thing that was probably done as an afterthought or thought, well, this will be super convenient. Well, why, why not do it? And nobody was thinking through the consequences. Yeah. Um, but perhaps, you know, f- profound changes do arise from the seemingly mundane. Yeah. Well, and, and uh, co-education in general probably has a lot to do with the problems of modern American society. Is what, I mean, you just... A, by ensuring that most of the men in American society are utterly useless to respond to political turmoil because they've had like any masculine be beaten out of them yeah. with a stick over the course of, of 30 years. I wonder about that, though, because I, I, I would have to look at data, which I don't know off the top of my head. I don't even have a, a sense of it. You know, how much was co-ed and how much wasn't? I get the sense that elite colleges were mostly sex-segregated um, you know, obviously the Ivies were all, or most of them, maybe not all, like Hillsdale College, where I teach, was not from the very beginning in 1844, but it's, you're talking about one small liberal arts college. I don't get the sense, though, that public education through grade 12, nor any of the public universities were um, sex segregated, basically ever. Yeah. So uh, I, my, if I had to guess off the top of my head, I would say co-education was probably the norm to let's pick a number two-thirds of the population something well above 50 percent for most of our histories i don't know if that that's to say that's not to take anything away from the benefits of segregation by sex i went to an all-boys high school i think there were certain advantages to that but i'm not sure that's i wonder how big of a specific problem that was well and and now i'm remembering who brought up this point recently it was actually our our friend uh dr meehan at at hillsdale he he said is specifically in the context of uh post-pubescent uh, co-education, that that was the novelty and that it ended up becoming a necessity mostly in the era of westward expansion because you didn't have the population to support two schoolhouses. Yeah. You put people in one schoolhouse um, and and that was unusual. Um, 
I, I just don't know. I, I didn't talk to him about it or ask him, but I don't, I don't know. I know that, you know, what I know of the history of California, you know, I've read a lot of books on it, going all the way back to its foundation as a state. Aside from some religious schools, it's always been co-educational. Yeah. Why is the right useless to respond to everything going on in the country right now? Uh, to be charitable, uh, probably um, the first reason would be they're too hopeful. That is to say they're too hopeful that a an era that they remember fondly because it was good to them personally and because the country was doing well and because who doesn't remember a, an era of you know, a good Arab good times fondly, they think is repeatable or restorable, and I don't. Or if it is to be restored, I believe it's going to have to come on the backs of fundamental, not incremental change or, you know, just getting the tax rates right and stuff. And they, I think they, they don't want to believe that. And there's a good, you know, there's a decent sound motive for wanting to believe it. Nobody wants to believe that the country they grew up in has been, you know, fundamentally changed for the worse. And that that change might be irreversible or that to reverse it would require something other than the kinds of, you know, incremental policy tweaks and electoral victories. You'd much rather believe that. And the older you get, the more you want to believe that because, you know, the older you get, the more you, I suppose, get set in your ways. But um, some of them, as we were saying before, the camera rolled are just simply grifters. They just make a lot of money off the current system and it's going fine. So why, you know, and they know that they risk the grift if they fundamentally challenge the regime, right? If you if you're at now I'll name names, right? If you're at National Review or AEI or the Heritage Foundation, your job is to pretend to, to oppose, but to really support. Your whole business model, well, your 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 business model as staff and management collapses if you don't do that. It's an open question why the donors donate to these places. I actually believe they're deceiving their donors for the most part. That is, I'd like to believe most donors to Nat Conservatism Inc and our heritage, whoever, they're writing checks. They think these guys are fighting bad leftists. You know, they're fighting socialists, communists, America haters, critical race theory. They're standing athwart yelling stop. They really think that. They don't think I'm writing this check so that Rich Lowry, Ramesh Panura, Jonah Goldberg, and other fat, useless grifters can have six-figure jobs to do nothing but sell out my country and pretend that they're saving me. I don't think they think that. But just to be completely clear, that's what they're doing. Yeah, or uh, in David French's case, to write the um, the conservative case for hereditary blood guilt, um, as you put it. Yeah. Um, the critical race theory thing is, is, I think, interesting. I I myself have struggled somewhat with this becoming a thing on the right. Chris Rufo is a good friend. I think he is he's great, um, and I think that he has a conception of the fight that he's fighting that is that is just and proper. I do get sort of skeptical when I see like the most establishment forces on the right suddenly saying, oh yeah, the biggest issue is, is critical race theory. It's like, what does that mean? And then also like, when did it start, right? Because that, I think the biggest mistake would be to assume that all of the nonsense in American society on race is a creation of the last three to five years and that it's critical race theory that's the problem. How are you thinking about this? Well, I mean, on the one hand, you know, the more in the fight, the merrier. So as long as those who are signing up now, m most of the ones who sign up the Johnny-come-latelys, especially the big institutional powerhouse Johnny-come-latelys, I think are doing it for cynical reasons. But if their cynicism can be used, that is to say, if they are just noticing, this is popular, we can raise money off this, our donors like it, our rank and file likes it, all to the good, as long as they're actually effective in fighting it the way Rufo is, 
if they pretend, what worries me is that they pretend to get into the fight and then they take stances or take steps that undermine the fight. They start making, well, prudentially, yes, we're completely against it, but we shouldn't do this because this might backfire. So let's actually support. When they start doing that, which they often do, then you know yeah. that, that they're there. They're double agents and they're there to undermine you. In terms of the origin of it, um, I, I got into a, a kind of acrimonious argument with Yarvin, Curtis Yarvin, a couple of days ago about this. I think it goes back to the 60s. I think it, it critical race theory, as we understand it, comes to be formally in the late 80s and the early 90s on campus. It grows out of intellectual strands that emerge from the 60s. And, you know, Curtis was trying to say, it goes all the way back. You know, it's like basically in the beginnings of time when the first amoeba crawled out. There, 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 was, there was critical race theory. I'm, I'm, or Christianity is often I'm, like I'm, a I'm not doing his argument justice, but I'm, I'm being about as uh, fair to his argument as he was to mine <laughs> as it unfolded. So it really, you, you know, having studied the old left, you know, the progressive left and the socialist left and the communist left, right? There isn't really this um, emphasis on race. And in fact, to the contrary, to the extent that the capital P progressives, the sort of original left movement in America, focus on race, um, their views seem racist to us today. In fact, they get condemned all the time. You, you read Woodrow Wilson, Herbert Crowley, a lot of these guys, Margaret Sanger, right? The, the left has to, if they're going to be consistent, if you've ever said X about group Y, you must be cast out, you know, canceled even posthumously. They've got to cancel and get rid of all of these people. The Dems were, in fact, uh, the real racists. Yeah, <laughs> back, well, but we, yeah, that's, yes. Although original capital P progressivism was bipartisan. Yeah. It, it, be, it had a home in both parties and then even created a third party, which didn't last very long. Mm. And then, of course, it settles into, mostly into the Democratic Party later. Um, you start to see that you start to see one thread of it is the Soviets using race against us it's to say, well, if America's the land of freedom and opportunity, you know, how can it treat a fifth of its population this way? Now, that was completely cynical on their part. Um, but you understand why they did it. Yeah. Why not? I China mean, does it today. If you are our adversary and this is a weakness, you pound away at the weakness. It's what you do. I mean, there's not this is not a good faith competition. This is a world struggle for world domination. Um, but it only really seems to infect uh, our ideological bloodstream in the '60s, um, coming at some of that's foreign imports from uh, you know literal foreign imports, like people like Marcuse that we bring into this country, who then spread poison. Others that you know just write books on the outside, but we all get enamored of them and read them. And some of it's homegrown, but it definitely becomes a thing, a formalized doctrine that is only on campus and only on the most radical campuses in the late '80s and the early '90s. But that just slowly, not spreads, makes it sound inevitable. It's pushed, right? It's a it's a plan. It's like no, we're going to make sure that we get this everywhere. We're going to we're going to we're going to, you know, first it's got to we take over the sociology departments, then we take over all the social sciences, and then the human right. It's 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 a, it's a conscious if if not a plan. I don't mean to say that there's like one person who wrote the plan and said okay everybody go execute, but there's a conscious push by a bunch of like minded people to make sure that this takes over as many. Uh, first intellectual and academic and cult and then cultural and so on outward institutions as possible. Yeah. Well, and, and some of it's um, it, it's emergent because it has to be because uh, and Eric Weinstein loves to talk about this stuff. Uh, we we educate way too many master's degrees and PhDs in this stuff yeah. to all work at universities. And so they have to go somewhere. And so they, uh, you know, yell and scream and bang on the door at Shell Corporation or at Goldman Sachs until they get a job in the HR department and then they they Well they, they don't have to yell and scream and bang on the door anymore. I mean part of the conquest of the American mind on this question is the corporations 
you know, are, are they're begging for it. Now, I say they're begging for these people. They Corporations probably don't have enough slots either. But it's not like they have to be strong-armed into creating an HR department and creating a diversity and inclusion office and all. They only do that quite willingly. But a corporation of, you know, let's say X number of employees may think, I only need Y diversity bureaucrats. The diversity bureaucrats may think, no, 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 you need Y plus Z because you haven't hired me yet. <laughs> um, that is a pro- the, the overall uh, overproduction of elites problem, though, is a problem, but it's bigger than that. It's not just that we produce too many would-be diversity bureaucrats. We just produce too many knowledge workers generally, and we don't know where to put them. I mean, this was a, when I was in grad school in the mid-90s, everybody was already saying, you know, the glory days of academia are long over. You, if you came back from World War II and got a PhD in the 50s or 60s, you had no problem finding an academic job because of the, the huge, you know, the boomer, just for demographics alone, the boomer population was so large. Um, and then the expansion, you know, of people who went to college, so the percentage of people who even went to college before the war was whatever it was, it was very low. And it was continually rising throughout the 20th century so that you had A, a larger number of people just simply in absolute numbers and B, a higher share of people going to schools. And so campuses were opening everywhere. The public university systems were expanding. I mean, Claremont McKenna College, which was the, the campus where affiliated with where I went to grad school and where my teachers were formerly on the faculty, Kessler and Jaffa, was only founded in 1946. And precisely to serve this baby boom and this hugely growing population of Southern California. And that was well over by the 90s. And yet the grad schools never stopped pumping out new PhDs, um, in part because they made money off of it. There were all kinds of foundations who would fund the PhD and the grad schools would keep the tuition. Um, And then in part because uh, they knew that glutting the labor supply made it easier for them to cut costs. So, all right. I don't need a tenured professor to teach this or that class. I can hire adjuncts uh, on a one-year or one-semester basis or on a semester-to-semester basis, pay them peanuts and no benefits. And since there's so many of these people and they're all desperate to work in their chosen field, they'll settle for almost anything. Um, And that was, like I said, that was already a problem 25 years ago, if not before that. And it's only gotten a lot worse. Well, and it's, it's terrible obviously in the social sciences, but there's a chart floating around the past couple of days. Um, It's a problem in biology. There are, I think, 11 times as many graduates in the life sciences than there are jobs in the United States. I mean, it's it's that bad. Um, What, I mean, let's put a fine point on it. What percentage of the college seats available in the United States today should exist if you know, King Anton gets to ax them. I don't have a number. I, I mean, less, right? And to say that as a college professor sounds like, huh, how could you? How could you? Um, but you know, clearly less. And clearly so many students would be better off if they didn't go. Um, there's a lot of people that just, they're not that into it, but they go because they feel like they have to. They feel like it's a parental expectation or a societal expectation or a job market expectation. And they don't learn that much and they don't enjoy it or they just enjoy the partying side and not the learning side and then they get saddled with debt right and uh, it seems to me we're we're failing people i mean we're you know that old this is an old joke but you know garrison keelier i don't know if any of your listeners will remember him i think he's still alive but he had this uh, radio show on pbs called the prairie home companion and it was like he was from minnesota or something and he it was like it was a parody of an old time or not a parody, but a pastiche, a kind of mimicry of an old time 
you know, 1930s radio show, pre-TV era, and he, set in the fictional Lake Wabagon. And he would say, you know, where one of the taglines was where all the children are above average. It's like the No Child <laughs> Left Behind Act. The No Child Left Behind Act, which Bush rammed through and finally signed, I can't remember in, whether it was 20, 2001 or 2002. But, you know, he said that this law mandates that, uh, a federal law that mandates that by date X, all children will be above average in reading math and something like that. Or as, well, that's logically impossible. Mm -hmm. So we've sort of promised ourselves that, like Blue America, which which is the heart of the regime, the intellectuals of Blue America, have concluded that there's no value to not being a knowledge worker. You're a you're a lesser person. That's the mean side of their of the regime's calculus. The, the, the nice side, if you want to call it that, is so we're going to reorient society to make sure that everyone becomes a knowledge worker. Since there's no value in not having a BA and going into knowledge work, the people who don't do that are fundamentally lesser value people, miserable people. We're going to make sure that everybody does that. And not only is that impossible, it's a recipe for misery before you even get to the question of, well, okay, who's going to fix the pipes? You know, I mean, and, and it's, you know, I don't mean that in a condescending way. I mean, we've all met people who are just much happier in a trade, right? In a physical work. They just like physical work better. And, you know, they don't want to go and study metaphysics or accounting for that matter or biology or sociology or whatever. They just don't want to do it. Yeah. They, they, they kind of forced their way through high school. And that was about as much as they could take and care about it. Now they want to get out and do something real. Um, we got to we got to get over. I think, you know, I don't I, I'd like to think our side isn't really guilty of this. I hope they're not. But we certainly need to not feel condescending toward people like that. Um, I do get a lot of uh, comments from people, you know, obviously unfriendlies, you know, hostile who say. Why is a guy like you in your suits and, you know, in your New York background and your, your college professor and all the, you know, your writer intellectual, what the hell do you have to say to or about Red America? Like, you're nothing like them. Okay, fine. Does that mean that I, I have no arguments that I can make in defense of them? I mean, I mean, does, does everything I say therefore automatically discounted if I were to say that Red Americans will be better off if we close the border to tighten the labor market and if we stop outsourcing jobs and, 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 you know, and we make it harder to offshore factories. Is it um, incorrect just because I said it? People seem to think that's a real, like, devastating comeback. Yeah, no. You, so anybody above, whose education is above a certain level or whatever, you, you have no standing to make these arguments. And they're trying to, what they're trying to do, I think, is make sure that there isn't anybody in their own kind of category of experience who stands up for these communities. Right. If you're not that they would ever concede that I'm smart uh, or even educated, but the basic premise seems to be if you're um, the least bit smart or educated, you have to be with us or you're inauthentic and you're fake. If you are smart and educated in any way and you use that to defend these interests, it's proof that you're a fraud. And therefore, those people should hate you and not listen to you. Yeah. I think that's what they're trying to do with that. Yeah, I mean... It'd be so interesting to see what the analog on the other side would look like, right? Is that so? It, it seems like, you know, if, if you were to broad make a generalization, the left sees its role in the United States to defend the interests of racial minorities, and the right sees its role, hopefully, in the coming decades to defend the interests of middle America. 
but it's very clear that this rule does not apply on the left where uh, if you aren't black, you can't defend the interests of black people. Like it's very clearly a, a tool to prevent uh, people they can't dismiss out of hand, i.e., you know, people who uh, have the university education they so uh, admire from. Well, although increasingly, I mean, I find this personally, I and my, well, we'll see where this goes. I mean, actually, lately we've been attacked a lot, which leads me to believe, hmm, they're worried about us. Otherwise, why pay any attention to yeah, us? Yeah, the eye of Sauron is now on uh, you. <laughs> um, but on the other hand, I've noticed that, like, uh, I do think I'm increasingly ignored by by Blue America generally. They don't pay any attention. I mean, they don't even really snipe at me that much anymore, personally. Like, they, they kind of realized um, better just pretend he's not there. Just tune him out. He doesn't exist. Nobody, re- none of them re- reviewed my book. Not even an attack review of my book. The only uh, only attention I get is from bulwark types who I think have nothing else to do. But anybody from the blue side with anything on the ball or any kind of institutional heft behind them from the New Yorker or the New York Times or the Washington Post, I don't exist. I just, and I, believe me, I existed to them three or four years ago. They couldn't stop talking about me. Um, but now I haven't really changed my views at all. They, I just evaporated in their, in their eyes. There may be a memo out there saying, you know, don't give answers. I doubt it. I don't, I don't think there is any coordination yeah. amongst these people. But I think they sort of, they're such a hive mind that they, you know, you know, you know a famous analogy, how a flock of birds immediately just, they all change direction at once. Yeah. I don't think Head Bird has a radio transmitter and all the other birds. <laughs> Somehow they know. Yeah. How they know, I don't know. But one of them goes like, nope, we're going this way. They all just go. Yeah. It doesn't take it. And if it if if there's communication, it's that split second when you're still flying this way, but you notice the other guy going that way, and you immediately turn and to the human standing on the surface, you miss the split second. All you see is the flock turning it as if it won. Yeah. Even though there might have been that split second when they saw it. Yeah. Well, it's good because it allows for uh uh, your devoted readers on the right to pay ever closer attention while they well it, it, this is the thing that I don't know whether to think that this is hopeful or dismaying or irrelevant but I find that and I like to say I'm about the bluest culturally the bluest person you can imagine I, only, I grew up on the coasts on one coast I lived only on the coasts I was educated solely on the coasts unless you want to say Claremont is not the coast because it's you know an hour from Santa Monica but it is Los <laughs> Angeles County California um, you know, and, and there are so many other ways in which I'm very, very blue. And Drink yet, fancy wine. I found <laughs> I now have nothing in common with them anymore. Yeah, at all. Nothing. I can't talk to them about anything. None of them want to talk to me. I mean, I, I had a lot of old friends from the business world, even the political world. You know, there were a lot of people like the Giuliani administration where I worked was not filled with fire breathing Republicans. Although Rudy himself went strongly for Trump. And so did many people around Rudy. There were lots of people in there who were basically Democrats in the city at the time who didn't like the crime and the chaos. And they were willing to work with Giuliani, who, and in part because in the context of the 90s, he was a very liberal Republican um, or a moderate or whatever you want to say. But, you know, not um, a heartland conservative Christian evangelical, to put it mildly. Um, I don't talk to any of those people anymore. And the few occasions when I've tried, it's gone very badly. And I realize... I'm entirely now, except for the fact that I live in a blue county, I'm utterly cut off from blue. Like I don't, I, I should say, I shouldn't have any necessarily hard feelings about them not reading me because I don't read them. We're not talking to one another anymore. I don't think. I don't think either side is really talking to one another. Yeah, a group of people that you are trying to uh, reignite a connection with potentially is 
uh, a group that has been you know variously called the paleoconservatives on the right um, there are old old fights that i still don't fully understand and i doubt i ever will from what are known as straussians and and what are known as paleoconservatives a can can you just briefly explain like what is the source of this historical disagreement? It seems to go back at least a half century, if not longer. Uh, and then what are you trying to do to, to bridge some of these divides? Um, okay. I'm not going to start at the very beginning. So I'll start kind of in the middle of the story. The Because there are no Straussians before a certain point, right? Yeah. There's you know, Strauss doesn't get to America until 39, and he doesn't really start making a wave until after he goes to Chicago. And even then, he's not having an influence on, he only has an influence, I would say, on the discussion of American politics and American history through students. Because mm -hmm. it's something that he never, or he, I was gonna say he never talks about himself. He never thematically talks about himself. There are a tiny number of stray remarks where he'll say, he'll quote Jefferson here, or he'll say something here, but you know, that, and then he moves on. Um, it comes down to these fights that Jaffa, my teacher, and 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 some others, admittedly other Strauss Strauss students of America, Herbert Storing, Walter Burns, Martin Diamond, and and a few others. I would say those are the big, the big, the biggest uh, names who are taking Strauss's argument from the ancient world that there is this thing, natural right, natural justice, right? What is the? I mean, the the the, the fundamental, in a way, question of almost every Platonic dialogue or Aristotelian treatise or Xenophon little dialogues is the city the political community believes x and y are just why did it believe that well because it's in the poets or because the god said so or because we have the, or because it's our law or because we've just always thought this and when you subject that to critical examination you find problems with it and the answer from there you could go one of two ways one is oh it turns out that all authoritative tradition is just made up and nothing is true or this authoritative tradition may have some problems but in fact if you look into it you find what the real truth is it by nature, it just doesn't match the authoritative account. How do you deal with that? Jaffa via Strauss and, and other Strauss students port this idea of natural right into the modern world. And they say, you know what? The Everything Plato's talking about, Aristotle's talking about, right and wrong, justice and injustice, legitimacy and illegitimacy, they do exist by nature. Okay? And the paleos... First of all, they considered these guys aliens, essentially. They're like, well, wait a minute. Strauss is literally an immigrant. <laughs> so why are we listening to him tell us about America? To which the students said, um, we're not aliens. We're Americans, right? And then so some of this is personal. You get a little paleo. Yeah, but you're all a bunch of urban immigrants. So like, <laughs> who are you to tell us who have been here centuries, you know, you know, what this is? And there's there's a little bit of this is, and, you know, why should we listen to the Jews? Uh, although others like Walter Burns is not Jewish. So this you can't even put it entirely on that, Right. But it, it, it comes, to, so there's the, you, there is a personal element to this. There's just a sort of tribal acrimony between two sides. And then there's the actual argument. And I think both of those two things explain the bad blood. Um, they, the paleo argument is, you know, uh, America is a tradition. Um, it's folkways. It's, you know, it doesn't have a, it doesn't start in 1776. You have to understand it going back to, uh, Jamestown, going back to Plymouth, going back to the Massachusetts Bay Colony, you know, the shared history and all of this stuff. And to which our side, the Straussian side says, of course, that's all true. But that still leaves unanswered. The question is, um, are there fundamental principles that transcend that and that are knowable to the human mind? To which we say, yes, 
There are. So you can have, you know, your tradition and the fundamental principles of the American Revolution can still be true in all times and in all places and the true basis for the American polity. Um, and paleos have kind of two responses to that in my experience. One, if they're more honest, they just deny it and they go, nope. You know, I mean, Mel Bradford, his most famous book is called A Better Guide Than Reason, which to me is an extremely helpful, revealing title because it's so clear what he's saying. This, that an appeal to tradition and folkways and custom and all of this is a better guide than reason. Mostly they just, people are less clear than that and they kind of dodge the question. Well, you know, well, but that declaration in the context meant that it's like, all right, if you try to pin one of them down, but is this specifically true? You get squid ink in too, too often than not. Um, now, as for the, uh, you know, Mel Bradford's A Better Guide Than Reason, to me, the, uh, the ultimate, you know, I immediately default to, okay, better how? Better according to what standard, right? I know what a phrase better guide than reason means, but better presupposes you have some standard outside which allows you to rank something higher than reason. What is that standard? Doesn't really, I don't think, have a clear answer to that. To me, just saying better guide than reason, just saying the word better presupposes natural right. You've taken for granted the thing which you're denying. You say this thing doesn't exist because this is better. Why is it better? On what basis is it better? I've never heard a compelling answer to that. So what they hear, though what paleos hear when they hear us talk like this is, you know, a bunch of Straussians with gigantic high-pressure fire hoses filled with, you know, corrosive acid just hosing down America and washing it all away and all you have left is this abstraction uh, committed to equality with a leviathan state dedicated to pounding down anybody who rises above the norm and forced equality across the board now unquestionably there's a lot of the left that engages in that and wants to do that um, although even here the left is highly hypocritical I mean it's hard to be the party of Jeff Bezos and Mark Zuckerberg <laughs> and bleat on about equality and be taken seriously as someone who um, deserves credit for consistency. But leave that to one side. Um, this is not the way the founders understood equality. It's not the way they practice it. It's not the way they meant it. And um, I, I ultimately come down to this question of if the paleos, they want to conserve America. They, love, they say they love America, and I believe them. But part of America are these revolutionary documents and these principles that inform the founding. And so it, it's, it's difficult and it seems to me inconsistent to say I love the one and I dismiss the other. Whereas my argument is I love the one and I and in part because I believe the other. Um, anyway, it's it's gone well. I, there are a few paleo bitter enders out there who will just they're going to be like Japanese soldiers in 1975 <laughs> waiting for the Marines to land. <laughs> Don't know the war is over, but all the institutional guys around Chronicles and the American Conservative and elsewhere have been friendly, have have responded positively to the overtures, have been willing to talk about it, and you know, and and, and most importantly, see very clearly that whatever theoretical differences may remain between us, they at least for the moment pale in comparison to threats, and would rather fight the threat than fight over the theory. But like, there are some bitter enders out there who are, and I said this in my book, you know, I'm, I had a conversation with a guy quite a long time ago who was just like, no, it's all Lincoln. Like, as long as you love Lincoln, you, I, I, you know, you're, you're the enemy. I go, okay, well, basically there's an army coming at us both right now, wants to kill us all. Can we, can we kill each other over Lincoln after we defeat that army? 
and I'm paraphrasing his answer was no. It's much more important that I kill you over Lincoln <laughs> right now. It's like I, nothing I can do with you. Yeah. So the people with the the actual people with you know institutional um, uh, resources and, and heft behind them are not in that mode now. And I'm for that I'm I'm grateful and and hopeful. I suppose one upshot of this disagreement would be what it says about what needs to be done tactically um, to solve the problems with this regime right now. And what I mean by that is that questions about whether there were poison pills in the founding from the beginning are deeply relevant when it comes to what regime we're chasing if we are to win. Yeah. Um, what do you make of the contention that that, that view of equality that let's take it for granted that that's what the founders had, will ultimately lead to what we have today. Why would it? I don't see why it would ultimately lead to what we had today. It had to be perverted and corrupted and twisted uh, and undermined in order to get what we have today. Why was that inevitable? And then what would your alternative be, right? We are not, uh, the document says all men are created equal. Do you feel like the present regime of 2021 treats all American citizens equally before the law? Because I don't. In fact, I would say as a matter of fact, it does not. So to anyone on the paleo right who thinks equality is the problem, I would ask and have asked, wouldn't on your own terms, the American government be functioning better if you know Kyle Rittenhouse were not in jail while people who burned down entire cities were, if they got arrested at all, were immediately let go with, uh, you know, without, well, I guess Rittenhouse is not in jail, but he is in trial for his, on trial for his life. Think about all the January 6th protesters who, got, you know, Kyle Rittenhouse, you could at least say, shot somebody. Now, I happen to believe he shot somebody in self-defense, and it looks to me like it was self-defense, and this is all political prosecution. But think about the people in jail in a D.C. lockup right now who are unarmed, who walked into the Capitol building when Capitol police officers held the door open for them, and they're in jail without bail, awaiting a trial which may start whenever. Are those tr people treated equally before the law? Think of all the myriad ways, thousands, hundreds of thousands of ways, people are treated unequally before the law as a principle of this regime. And you're going to tell me that the founders' equality is somehow the problem? I don't get that at all. Now, I know your question was more, did it lead to this? But how did it lead to this? What do the American founders or the statesmen of the early republic or Abraham Lincoln or the post-Civil War you know, generation who all understood this the same way, what on earth do they have in common with the Wokies who keep our catechism today and enforce it on the regime and on the rest of us? Yeah. I don't see that either. I think, and I'm, and I don't even necessarily believe this, but to steel man their case, I mean, it's, I heard someone once put a construction along these lines is that, you know, the, the, the small uh, liberal, you know, looks around for for dragons to slay, and and you know inequality is one of them. And then when all the formal structural barriers to inequality have been removed, maybe him, maybe his son, maybe his grandson will look around and will say, "Well, things are still unequal, like in, in 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 an equity sense." And so they'll start trying to beat that down. And ultimately, like until there is equality of outcome, they'll never be satisfied because that that's the it's the impulse that matters. Oh, if that is true, then it means first of all there are always. Um, forces operating against any regime, no matter what its basis is. Whatever the regime says is its claim to justice and its claim to legitimacy. There will be people who say, that's wrong, that's fake, it, it's, an, it's harmful to me, and I oppose you. If the, if the regime in question is a just regime, then it means that the duty of those who support it is to fight those people and win. So if those people are always going to be around, 
if the thing that we're fighting for is just and the right thing to do, then the answer is to acknowledge that they're always going to be around and beat them. My second point is, what's the alternative? If the alternative to equality is inequality, what basis is inequality going to be on? Right? How are we going to create a new hereditary aristocracy? Are we going to make it race caste based? Are we going to say if you were here before a certain date, you're a noble, and if you came after a certain, your ancestors after a certain date, you're a commoner? Are we going to say you have this amount of money or this amount of education, and therefore you're a noble, and then you're down here, you're a commoner? We kind of have that now, don't we? Isn't that sort of the way blue America works, right? Upper castes are the highly credentialed and or the rich. Lower castes are are the are the deplorables. I, w- what? Wait, first of all, I don't think any of these distinctions exist in nature. There are natural distinctions between human beings. Some are more talented, some are less talented, some are smarter, some are dumber, some are more virtuous, some are less virtuous. Um, The only way you're going to have any kind of stable aristocracy is to found it in nature. And then you have a problem of identifying those people, getting everyone else to agree that they're the superior ones, and then finding a way to perpetuate it. I mean, this is the heart of Plato's Republic is we're going to have a three-tier caste system, essentially, the, the, the allegory of the metals, right? The gold, the silver, and the bronze. And there's somebody, there's a group, a cabal at the top, the philosopher kings, who are consistently sorting people into groups. So if you are born to gold parents and they analyze your soul and they go, sorry, you should be a shoemaker, you just get plucked out of your caste and dropped over here at the say-so of philosopher kings, similarly through the other castes. Right, something like that has to operate for this to work, or you make it hereditary. I, I I just find both of those to be anti-nature, and unjust, and unstable, and that they will cause rebellions. Yeah. How do we judge America's run? Um, you 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 made a point recently that I've just sort of been thinking about is that, look, I mean, e- even if they're right, two hundred fifty years is historically speaking like top decile in terms yeah. of how long civilizations last. <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, for one constitution, certainly. I mean, you know, it depends. It, it, as with everything, it depends on when you want to start the clock. Mm-hmm. I mean, when did, Brit- when did British civilization, English civilization start? Is it the Norman Conquest? Is it the Magna Carta? Is it So certainly civilizations have lasted longer than ours. On the other hand, in the modern world, with everything speeded up, in a sense, you have to wonder whether 250 isn't all that bad. Mm-hmm. And in fact... I'm with the paleos here. American civilization is older than 250 years. It doesn't begin on July 4th, 1776. Yeah. It does go back. They call Hannah Jones is directionally right. correct. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, in a sense, that, you know, well, she's lying in that Jamestown's founded in 1607, and she says nothing matters until 1619, mm. right? She discounts entirely. Look, we just had the 400th anniversary of the Massachusetts, not the, sorry, not the Massachusetts Bay Colony in 1630, of the Plymouth settlement in last year, 60, 2020. In a normal country, in a normal civilization that cares about its past, the 400th anniversary of something so momentous would have been widely celebrated. This is another difference between... It was. We set cities on fire. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, this is another difference between my upbringing and, I guess, lots of other people's. When I was a kid, we learned about Plymouth Rock. We learned these things as heroic accomplishments that are foundational to our nation. They don't teach that anymore. If you learn about it at all, it's a bunch of bad white people came and killed Indians, yeah. even though they didn't. Or, or, um, yes, they did to some extent, but they also cooperated. And they don't tell you the cooperative side. They only tell you the bad side, right? Um, so American civilization is at least 400 years old. That's not a terrifically bad run. And since it's not going to end tomorrow... Um, It might end up being 450 or 500. I don't know how how old it is. Uh, I think in the modern world, that's not such a bad run. I do think, though, that we're whatever we're going through is this is another problem with the paleo argument. Right. Um, 
it seems like the entire West and the entire Anglosphere, including countries that have nothing like the Declaration of Independence. I mean, France has the universal, you know, the, the 1789 documents that persist through various republics and regimes. So it may become the closest. Although you'd think that if France were to be able to overcome some radical uh, commitment to equality, or if any society could, I was going to say, it should be France, which had a hereditary aristocracy for centuries before that, and whose civilization long predates 1789 and in subsequent revolutions. But there are many other countries throughout the West that have no such document, no such commitment, and they're all going through a kind of similar spiritual crisis to ours at the same time, which suggests it's something bigger and um, not caused by these documents. Now, to take their side for a second, maybe they would say, yes, well, these documents are just the epiphenomena. I, th I suppose if somebody like Patrick Deneen were here, who I'm going to debate at Harvard in April, if anybody wants to come, he would say, yeah, you're right. The Declaration of Independence is not the cause of this. The real cause of this is early modern political philosophy, going back to Locke, if not before that, of which the Declaration is just an epiphenomena. And the reason why the whole West seems to be undergoing a crisis at the same time is because there, even though the, it manifests itself differently, depending on which society you're in, they all trace their roots back to this modern revolution. Um, that is, to me, is a lot more plausible than the paleo argument. And yet I still find problematic or at any rate i'm not convinced yeah um it, it, the concerning thing is that it seems like it, it might it might be the destiny of not just the west but but everywhere right is that you see similar malaise and decline in in east asia you yeah. see it and and potentially that's that's where africa is going as well it's just 200 years previous on the clock right now um are there any alternative answers you have to what's causing well this? every i mean other than the water there's a, supply. <laughs> there's a there's sort of affluence disease where a country no matter where it is no matter what its civilizational religious linguistic or ethnic background once it gets past a certain level of wealth it seems to lose heart and the demographics crash and now some of these places are highly functioning you go to japan you would not think this is a dying civilization necessarily it works a lot better than the united states does i can tell you that yeah. so does singapore yeah. Um, but the math fails when your population pyramids. The math, the math is bad, you know? and then and that's a sign. Like, why are people not having babies? Uh, and but I mean, even in a, a place like Iran, with a fundamentally, with a literally a explicitly Islamic fundamentalist government, I think the birth rate's one point. I don't know, but it's well under one and a half. Um, Iran, I mean, shouldn't this be a major baby boom? Not happening. Even as I understand it, I, I think Saudi Arabia is still, you know, at like pretty high. Declining, falling, and falling fast. Um, I don't know how, how society overcomes that, uh, or if it can, or if it just has to, this dynamic has to play out and then things restart however they restart. I mean, that's a dark thought, but it's not something, if you're going to think it through and try to be honest with yourself, that you can avoid. You, I, like I said, I was saying earlier, you, know, you, can't, you can't draw any conclusions from this. I, I get frustrated with the people facing so i'm repeating a point but facing a, uh, a fundamentally unprecedented situation who mm -hmm. then say i know what's going to happen mm -hmm. how the hell do you know so you don't find the the cycle of civilizations argument compelling you oh know, no i find good it times en create entirely compelling yeah is that what i mean first of all there's a cycle of regimes and there's a cycle of civilizations the cycle of regimes is smaller and within the cycle of civilizations um we may be in the middle of one we may be in the middle of the other we may be in the toward the end of both i don't know i just don't know the answer yeah um, there are certainly 
no shortage of reasons to believe that that's what's happening to us. Mm-hmm. I just think one needs to be circumspect about these things for at least two reasons. One is you can't really know. So why, you know, why pretend like you know when you can't possibly know? And the other is, um, you know, you, you, one should be somewhat rhetorically cautious, precisely because if you don't know, why, um, why demoralize people, right? Mm-hmm. I know it's all over. We're coming to the end of the civilization. I don't even know that. But to the extent that I say it and, and, and the people listen to me, what am I helping? Yeah. How is that going to make anything better? Well, in a similar vein, um, there's people who I find very influential and, and very compelling who make uh, an argument um, about America more broadly and what, what the obligations of a patriot is, is that you know this country is fundamentally interested in extracting wealth, resources, dignity uh, from the great middle of the country and that they, well, the they owe it nothing. Is. Yeah, the regime is, the, the, for sure. The, 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 what, what, what do you think the obligations of a, of a patriot are in a time like this? Well, first of all, you have obligations to yourself, to your family, and to those closest to you. And those obligations would mean don't take on the regime in a foolish way that will maybe principled and heroic, but are just going to get you killed and harm the people that you care about the most. So one can take a principled stand and be completely in the right and lose. And that loss is not necessarily noble. Like if you are the you know, I forget even soul support. Let's see, let's just posit a two income family with two kids getting by, not doing great, but not super struggling. But the dad knows the regime is out to get him. And he decides one day he's going to take some kind of heroic stand and show them what's up. And he gets killed or jailed for the rest of his life. Um, you didn't help your family. You didn't really help anything unless, unless your heroic demise, you know, sparks a revolution, in which case, okay. But, uh, you know, in the meantime, do what you need to do for yourself and your own and, and for your community and build that community. Try to make that community as strong as possible and, and get ready for whatever's coming. Because, you know, one of the things that could come is just, you know, uh, if not a total collapse, well, total collapse is possible, but or, le- or less than total collapse. Just, you know, we're, we're hearing it right now, you know, well, there's supply chain problems. You're noticing <laughs> that it's, just, it's hard to find certain things. You could see, you could, I think you could see without collapse, it's entirely plausible to believe that somehow the regime rumbles on, but GDP declines, per capita income declines, the availability of goods and services and foods and things that we're used to declines and life just gets harder but it goes on in which case you know you're going to need those communities to help you get through it and i think that's a smarter way of um dealing with the situation than a heroic stand does that make you an accelerationist well no i mean uh look uh, it doesn't even uh, to me, that's completely a thought experiment because there's nothing I can do or not do that'll make this whatever is going on go faster or slower. I don't believe that in any event. Um, so it's simply how much popcorn you're eating as you watch things. I will say, no, no, I'm not saying that either. Um, you know, I, I, I mean, if I if I thought that simply, I wouldn't write at all. I wouldn't do anything. I wouldn't even make any arguments. I'm trying to do what I whatever little I can do to move things in the right direction. I have maybe my real, what I consider to be a realistic assessment of the strength of the state and my own power makes me more fatalistic than I need to be. Um, I don't know, I mean, I, I guess my, somebody could compare things I've said here to things I've said elsewhere. And I, I'm sure if somebody wanted to do this, 
not that they would think I'm worth the trouble, but let's say someone did, they could put together clips of like me alternating between giving an optimistic take and a pessimistic take. I'm like, this guy's all over the map. But I'm trying to be consistent in saying, so like, you know, I talked about Curtis. So Yarvin, whom I debated Saturday, was basically saying, Everything is just sort of a fundamental downer. It's just, just, it's just virtue once lost is never regained. When competence and things slip away, it's just down, 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 down. I'm like, well, Curtis, if that's true, I mean, we'd be protists again. I mean, wouldn't we? I mean, the, you know, the human race, things do rise and fall. Civilizations, countries go through very bad patches. They go through very bad centuries. They come back. They go back down, right? It, and, you know, it's not just down, down, down. So then, you know, I'm, I, I'm in the position suddenly of being the optimist. And people in the audience are scoffing. They're like, this guy is saying that. But, you know, I also try to not be, you know, if I'm confronted with um, boomerism, for lack of a better term, you have to say, no, we actually face a lot of very serious problems. And some of the, uh, you know, targeted micro political solutions that you're talking about will not make a dent. Right. And then I sound like a big downer. Um, So I'm not eating popcorn. I'm trying to do what I can do trying to have some kind of influence. But also there's an element of waiting and seeing. Like, um, let's say I were an accelerationist and I thought the thing to do is like, we got to bring this thing down. There's no other way out of it, right? Is the time now to try to shake it to its foundations? Or I'll ask this question a different way. Um, What if in response to the Stamp Act in 1765, the Americans or a handful of them, the most committed decided the time to mark the revolution right now? They would have just gotten slaughtered and the revolution would never have happened. Timing can be everything in, 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 in circumstances like this. Yeah. Uh, one of your uh, critics uh, at The Bulwark uh, recently uh, brought up uh, what I've always found to be a charming part of your public persona, but um, others uh, use as an excuse to uh, laugh at you, uh, your, your um, appreciation for fine clothing and fine cooking. Um, can you talk a little bit about where all that stuff came from? Uh, you, I believe, have over a hundred thousand comments on a men's style forum somewhere. No, no, no. Forty. Uh, Forty thousand. That's at least that's been reported. I mean, yeah. it just keeps. There's a little ticker. It's like it just keeps track of it for yeah. you for everybody. Um, I haven't been on that forum, and I don't. Gosh, I think 2018. It's been a while. Yeah. It's gone completely left wing social justice warrior. Like I don't even know if it's about. Like when I was on it in in sort of heyday in the 2000s, um, it really was about. And I've heard this from other people who have been on various forums. There's a, like a cycle of regimes for forms. <laughs> they come into being, they grow, they get popular, then everything divides into little sects, and you know it, it declines. The people, you know, the people who sort of made it great leave. And uh, not that I'm saying, well, actually, in this case, I'm going to be, I'm going to be hubristic and say, yes, I was one of the people who made Styleform great. Eat it, <laughs> critics. Um, um, but also then they drift from their kind of original mission. And I could sense that a long time. Like when I got on Style Forum, it was really, it was very arcane and it was a bunch of um, serious enthusiasts all arguing about like, who's the best tailor and like, what's exactly the best cut and should this be done this way? It's, you know, super dork stuff that if you don't care, you don't care. And then it eventually kind of becomes, where can I get the best deal on a used whatever? Yeah. You know, I don't don't care about that anymore. But also... Like I bought enough suits. Like I got, I got a lot of suits when I was really actively buying stuff, and and into this, I was into style form. The same thing. I was writing a book about clothes when I was writing that book. Very, very into it. And then you just get to a point where, you know, hobby becomes less important, and you move on. Um, yeah, the idea though that I'm supposed to be ashamed of it, you know, I've just never, I never quite understood that. But they think it's devastating. Like 
All you need to know is he had 40,000 posts on a clothing forum. That is ipso facto proof that he's stupid and you shouldn't listen to him on anything. I mean, if, if you're so dumb that that argument you find persuasive, I agree. Don't read me. Pay no attention to me. I don't really want your uh, I don't really want your interest anyway. Yeah. What made you care? I mean, I, I, I find this a fascinating topic because like I find myself craving like any place in even a city like Washington, D.C. that actually has a dress code and there's like all of five. Like, yeah. What, what made you care about? I guess dressing my, I think I think it was my dad who was um, my father was a lawyer, a corporate lawyer in California. And, you know, at some big firms in San Francisco in L.A. and just had a taste for the high life and was always a snappy dresser. So my mom was, my mom was very kind of old school preppy, you know, button downs, rep ties, cordovan shoes, blazers. I used to say to people, I think this is true, that that San Francisco Bay Area, um, well, actually, I'm going to put this on another author. So it's a famous book that made a lot of money, like a huge bestseller. I want to say 1976, although I'm not entirely sure. It was called Dress for Success by John T. Malloy. So 76 is back in the day when like you had to wear a suit and tie to be in business, well before business casual was even a thing. And toward the back of the book, Malloy had breakdowns of major U.S. cities. Like this is what it's like in this city, and this is how it differs. Um, and he describes Boston, and you know Boston is very trad as the term this is an online term yes. that didn't exist before that but trad meaning like old prep school button down collars you know no french cuffs informal heavy tweeds um brooks brothers you know not not slick the opposite of trad is sort of the opposite of what we say with savile row if savile row is um maybe exemplified by spread collars and french cuffs and double-breasted suits and macclesfield ties and highly polished cap-toed shoes and you know vests and suspenders and that kind of thing boston trad was like the opposite of that it was sort of like the clothes you know if you have anybody ever read catcher in the rye it's what holden caulfield would have been wearing and then when he gets older the stuff just gets a bit more expensive but it's not fundamentally different and then he gets to san francisco malloy and he's like basically just see boston this is the way they dress and i remember reading that and i was like that's so right. I mean, that's what San Francisco, the corporate San Francisco that I remember from the 70s and 80s was trad. But it was the 80s is when San Francisco started to grow out of trad. And this this is well before Silicon Valley became a thing. So San Francisco then was dominated by, you know, real estate developers and lawyers and, and financiers and the business, the guys in the financial district and all the slick restaurants in the 80s were wearing much sharper designer Italian suits and Hermes ties and stuff like that. And my dad got into that. And then he went down to L.A. where everything was even more slick than in San Francisco. I sort of picked it up from him. But um, the second source of my interest was reading Tom Wolfe, who is super obsessed with this and getting into it. And then I went and got a suit made. I went to a tailor for the first time when I was 22 years old. Um, and yeah, I got two, actually two, one blue, one gray. Um, and they served me well for quite a long time. Um, yeah, I eventually kind of outgrew them but never stopped going to Taylor's. And all throughout that period in New York, especially, I was going a lot. I went to Taylor's in London. I went to some in Italy. I went to ones in New York. And like I said, eventually I just, I had enough, meaning I just bought enough. I didn't need any more. And also, as I was getting, you know, I feel bad for you. Like if you're really into this in 2021, the world's gone the other way and I don't know if it's going to come back <laughs> right so in in the 2000s when I was working either in the White House which is suit and tie every day or in 
Manhattan, corporate Manhattan, which was still suit and tie every day. It was very much a thing. Um, it's just been in decline to the point where I just was getting a text today, actually, from somebody I think we probably both know, although I won't name his name because I don't have permission. He was like, I, you know, I'm thinking of writing a thing against business casual as sort of part of the decline of civilizational standards and business world. Have you ever written about this? And I said, <laughs> I said, I have, but it's been a long time. And I got to tell you, like, I'm one of the worst offenders nowadays because I would put on a suit and tie to teach my class or to go speak at a conference. The rest of the time, I even I don't do it anymore. Yeah. Now, let's say I got another job like I'd had before. First of all, if, if I, it's it's impossible. I will never get another job in the corporate world. If I wanted one, they wouldn't, even if I wanted one, which I don't, they wouldn't hire me. But let's just wave a magic wand and assume I've moved back to Manhattan and I got a job at some big firm along Park Avenue. They're not going to require a suit and tie every day. In fact, they're going to look at you funny if you're wearing it, unless you're the CEO or something, or you're doing an investor presentation. Um, and the only other place where it might still be a thing is the White House, but I don't expect to ever go back there either. <laughs> well, hopefully that one is not true. Um, we'll see. Um, Professor Anton, thank you for for coming on the show. Uh, you don't have a Twitter account, which I think is probably I don't, for the no. best. Uh, you you got into uh, in an interview with I am seventeen seventy six the other day. Why that is the case, we'll we'll link that below. But uh, how do people keep up with uh, your ramblings? Um, I am mostly published in either the Claremont Review of Books, The American Mind, or uh, American Greatness, and then. You may see me somewhere else. If you do, it's because somebody asked me to do something and I like that person or I like that publication. But I kind of adopted it as a policy a while ago that uh, I don't send anything to anyone I don't already know. And if it's, and if it's something that I just wrote that no one has asked for, I go to one of those three because they're all my friends and we're all aligned in what we're trying to do. And what I'm trying to say is in keeping with their mission and I trust them and I know that the people who I want to reach will be reading those sites. Sounds good. Thank you for coming on the show, Professor. This week, uh, wanted to end on a little bit of a sad note, but uh, recently, uh, just a couple days ago, as of taping, uh, we uh, mourned the passing of one Angelo Cotavilla, um, who was a longtime fellow at the Claremont Institute, uh, former professor, um, uh, you know, Hill staffer, intellectual author, and a truly, truly brilliant man. Um, look, you're not going to find um, the most knowledgeable eulogy on on Angelo Cotavilla from me. I only had the pleasure of meeting him once. Uh, when I was a Publius Fellow this summer, um, he came and taught one of the closing lectures at the fellowship. But what I was immediately struck by uh, was an archetype that I've had the privilege of seeing a couple times in my life, which is a true teacher. I mean, he loved being there. Um, and uh, and as Matthew Peterson calls him, he, he was the original edgelord. I mean, he was early on so many of the diagnoses of the problems in this regime um, long before Donald Trump came around. And so um, he was unfortunately killed in a car accident here uh, just a couple of days ago. Um, and uh, and he, 
I mean, I, I can't point out just one piece that you need to go read uh, of Angelo's, but I will say uh, one of the particularly fantastic ones was uh, one he wrote uh, not too long ago called Abolish FISA, Reform FBI, and Break Up CIA. Uh, basically, his manifesto on what needs to be done to rein in these runaway intelligence agencies. Um, as Ryan Williams says, he had their number a long time ago, and he knows um, all of what, um, you know, the, the perfidy that, that permeates these institutions and what they do to everyday Americans. So, um, you know, our condolences are with his family and he certainly had a big one. I think there's, there's Cotavillos running around all over the United States of America and, uh, and go, go read yourself some Angelo Cotavillo. We'll be highlighting more of his stuff on the website in the coming weeks, but, um, he was truly a Titan, uh, and I'm, I'm very glad to have seen him, uh, for what would end up being his last Publius fellowship. But, uh, you know, just, a reminder that there are people who in the last 20 to 30 years were, were clarions uh, for truth. Um, when everyone else was paddling in one direction, they were paddling in the other. It's important to honor them. It's important to cherish them because um, they uh, deserve the credit and they have a lot of wisdom uh, that us younger folks can use as we try to fight the battles that they um, uh, that they fought their entire life. So uh, check out Angelo Cotavilla, a, a truly great man and a good man. And uh, be sure to review uh, and rate this podcast. Uh, Five-star reviews are always appreciated. We're giving away some shirts right now uh, for that. And uh, be sure to tune in next week on Moment of Truth. Thank you guys for listening. Moment of Truth is an American Moment Studios production filmed at the Conservative Partnership Center. Our podcast is produced and edited by Jake Mercier and Jared Cummings. Our intro music is A Minor Struggle by Ryan Serenich. Don't forget to like and subscribe on all platforms, and you can go to AmericanMoment.org to learn more.